Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to take out God's Word and open it to 2 Kings chapter 5. I won't have you stand up again because we're reading a, a long Old Testament story. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 5, it's also printed in your bulletin. Look forward to looking at this story with you this morning. 2 Kings chapter 5, this is God's word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. <clears throat> so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. 
And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just come now to me from the hill, of, the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Please be, accept, uh, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him. And tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing, and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in his house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Let's pray. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in your truth, and your word is truth. So we ask that you would show us Christ and his grace in this story. And by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, that I call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. This is one of my favorite quotes about pride. It's from a speech by an American businessman, a Christian. Uh, The speech is called The Art of Being a Big Shot. Uh, The the name of the businessman is Howard E. Butts. And I suppose with a name like that, he had a lot of time to think about the nature of pride. I don't really know how to quote him without saying something about that. You've heard of H-E-B grocery stores, maybe? Um, I've been to one in Texas. I think they're a Texas chain. That's the H-E-B and H-E-B. So Howard, we'll call him Howard, he gave this speech called The Art of Being a Big Shot. And he calls pride our basic dishonesty. I love that. Pride, my basic dishonesty. It's very perceptive. It's the perfect synonym for pride. Here's a little more context from his speech. He says, It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. And I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I am anything but a man. Small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It is not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It is my inner psychological integrity that is at stake. When I'm conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell. Pride, not admitting that we're small, weak, and limited. It rubs us the wrong way because we're, we're proud. We don't want to be viewed as small, weak, and limited. It's that basic dishonesty in all of us. 
And you don't have to be a big shot. I know the speech is called The Art of Being a Big Shot, but you don't have to be a big shot or be rich and famous to have this struggle, to think that you can go it alone, that you can do it all by yourself. From the time we're little kids, it's ingrained in us, right? Maybe some of you have little kids who are in that I can do it all by myself stage. It's, a, it's an amazing time, isn't it? They all, I can do it all by myself stage. Band-Aids were made for that stage. Teladoc was made for that stage. I can do it all by myself. But then again, it's not really a stage, is it? That tendency, that, that desire to do it all by ourselves grows with us as we grow older. It's the basic dishonesty in all of our hearts. And I think that this basic dishonesty, this pride that's in all of us is one of the main reasons, perhaps the main reason, that grace really rubs us the wrong way. Grace really gets under our skin. You know, we can sing amazing grace and, and say we love it, but if we really think about it, grace is kind of annoying. Grace tells you that you're small, weak, and limited. Grace tells you that you can't do anything to save yourself. Well, but I kind of want to do it all by myself, we think. On our best days, when we're fully aware of our desperate need, we love grace. Grace is amazing. We long for grace. But sometimes we suffer from this self-delusion of pride that we can go it alone, and it gets really annoying to think about grace. It confronts our stubborn hearts. But when we're humble enough to admit that we need grace, to admit that we're small and weak and in need of grace, it transforms us from the inside out. So this story we're going to be looking at, story we just read, a long story. It's an amazing story. Um, it's both wonderful and tragic, and it teaches us a lot about pride and grace. It's the story of Naaman and Gehazi, two men who have their own different struggles with pride, and they're both confronted with God's grace. They both get royally annoyed by grace, but it's kind of like looking in a mirror when we read this story, and we ask ourselves, as we see, as we see these two men and we see the story play out, how will I respond when I'm confronted with God's grace? You have two options here, two ways of responding to God's grace. The right response, what I really want you to get out of this story this morning, is that when we're confronted with God's grace, when we're confronted with our limitedness, when we're confronted with our need, we have to repent and receive God's grace. It sounds easy. It sounds like the application of a lot of sermons. But it's because it's the, it, it's the response that we most often struggle with when confronted with grace. When we're confronted with our need, we need to repent and receive it. Some of you need to repent and receive that grace for the very first time here this morning. Some of you, as Christians, need a reality check. and You need to run back to grace. So I'm hopeful that as we look at these two men in this story, we'll have that reality check and we'll cling to grace more tightly than before. Let's let grace get us a little uncomfortable. First, looking at uh, Naaman in this story. What do we learn from Naaman? The big thing we learn from Naaman is this. God's grace disabuses us of any notion that we can contribute one single thing to our cleansing and conversion. It takes away any thought that we can contribute anything to being cleansed, to being converted, to being saved. We have to humbly repent and receive God's grace. I don't know if you noticed it when we were reading the story, but right at the beginning, we're cued in about Naaman's basic dishonesty of pride. It's right there in verse 1, if you look there with me. How do we describe Naaman? He's, in our terms, a decorated war hero. He's celebrated in his government. He probably walked with a little swell in his chest. He was the king's uh, champion of his army. King loves Naaman. He surely thinks he's a self-made man, that he's accomplished all of this for himself. 
But the text slips in this line. It says, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. If only Naaman knew, right? That would have come as news to Naaman. Naaman thinks he's the one who's been able to accomplish all of these things. But it's just the Lord working through him. If only we were more aware of the Lord working out his sovereign plan in our lives, it might cut us down to size just a little bit. So right at the beginning, it slips it in. And in Naaman's case, he's already started to chip away at his self-sufficiency and his pride uh, by way of a very serious problem. I'm going to read verse 1 with just a little tweak to the English so you feel the force of this verse, of this introduction to Naaman as the Jewish readers would have heard it. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, a great man with his master and in high favor, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, a mighty man of valor, leper. Leper. It just drops like a bomb at the end of this verse. This would have jolted the ears of the Jewish people hearing this story. We're kind of like, what's a leper? I only hear about that in sermons. Uh, it's, it's this horrible, disfiguring, debilitating skin disease. But for a Jewish person hearing this, they would have said, oh, he's a leper. He's a leper. Any Israelite who suffered from this condition would be exiled, sent outside the camp. It was far more than just a death sentence with no real cure for leprosy. It was excommunication. They would be sent away from the place where they could worship the Lord in the temple. It didn't just threaten your life, it threatened your worship, it threatened your belonging to the community. So you get a sense for what it means when leper drops at the end of this verse. So when it drops at the end of verse 1, it would have been heard as this, this picture of the terrible curse of sin. It's a death sentence. And even for this Syrian, this outsider with no Jewish context, the disease would ruin his life. It would ruin his political career. He would no longer be the champion of the king's army. As surely as his clear and healthy skin vanishes, that's, that's, that's exactly what would happen with Naaman's reputation, with his pride, with his ability to serve in his position. This is a serious problem for Naaman. But he doesn't realize that his problem really is more than skin deep. He doesn't just have a disease. He has another death sentence. He's in need of God's grace. He's going to be confronted with that when he's cleansed, not just from leprosy, but from sin. So here in the early verses, we're introduced to another character um, that really highlights the foolishness of Naaman's pride. We meet this little Israelite girl. She's probably taken captive um, by a Syrian raid and given to Naaman's wife as a servant, really a slave. Um, here she is, far from home, ripped away from her family. She is forced in service to the enemy, and she shocks us all, right? What would you do if you were in her shoes? You might be glad to hear that your master has this disease, but what does she say? She tells Naaman's wife, Would that the Lord were with my prophet who is in Samaria, with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. See, mighty Naaman doesn't have any of the answers. He's at the end of his rope. But it takes this little nobody girl from Israel to suggest a remedy for his impossible situation. So what does Naaman do? He decides it's worth a shot. He takes letters from the king of Syria, and he goes along with loads of money and goods to give in exchange uh, for his cleansing. He goes to Israel, and we read in verse 7 that the king of Israel gets really out of whack by this letter, right? He thinks that it's just a ploy to start something between the two countries. He rips his clothes and he thinks, oh my word, why are they sending me this letter? I can't do anything about it. Talk about a wasted opportunity on the part of Israel's king. This is the king of Israel, right? This is 
the person who should receive a letter about a guy who's at the end of his rope, who needs miraculous salvation and be able to say, hey, I can't do anything about that, but I know exactly where you need to go for someone to do something about that. Let me introduce you to the God of Israel. The king of Israel just completely blows the opportunity. I think it sounds all too familiar, at least to me. We get so hung up on what we can or can't do when we serve the God who can and does and will save. So we should all be that guy who knows where to point another guy to the God who saves. But too often, um, we just don't do that. We should be able to say, listen, I can't help you, but I've grabbed onto Jesus by faith, and I know exactly who can help you with your desperate situation. Like it's been said, we're just beggars pointing other beggars to where they can find bread. So we see the king here. His clothes are torn in despair. Conspiracy theories are running around in his head, right? And then Elisha, the prophet, comes to talk with him. Calm down. Send him to me, and I'll show him that there's a prophet in Israel. And what he's really saying is, I'll show him there's God in this place. I'll show him the God that we serve in Israel. It's powerful words. And it's at this point in the story, we're really getting now to where Naaman gets confronted with grace. Under God's sovereign control, Naaman's proud heart is confronted with his need. And it really gets on his nerves. It really gets under his skin. It's one of the big moments in this story. We need, to pay, we need to pay careful attention to this and ask ourselves, how would I respond when confronted with God's grace? So here's what happens. Naaman arrives with his entourage at Elisha's house. He's brought everything he needs to bargain for his redemption, for his cleansing, for his healing. He can, he can buy his way out of this, he thinks. His pride looks like a padded wallet. He's ready to bargain. And then what happens? When this celebrated Syrian war hero shows up at the house of the prophet, Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his messenger. I mean, can you imagine if you're this decorated military hero from Syria and someone sends out their servant to talk with you when you come to their door? Not the reception he had hoped for. The messenger tells Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you will be cleansed. Naaman went away angry and he was furious that he would be told to go wash in the Jordan. Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He wanted a faith healing in today's terms. He wanted what he sees on TV, so to speak. His, the pagan prophets and the pagan priests that would surround Syria in his day, that's exactly what they would have done. They would have done incantations and there would have been this, this huge ceremony and then bam, Naaman would maybe be cleansed from his leprosy. But that's not what happens at all. And he gets told on top of that to go and dip in a dirty little river called the Jordan River. If you've ever been to Israel, I've been to Israel a couple of times, and the Jordan River is famous today, but right here in, in, in this time, like it's just what we would call in Kansas or Missouri a crick. It's nothing. It's nothing compared to the mighty Euphrates and the other rivers whose names I struggled to pronounce when I read the story. It is nothing compared to the glory of Syria. Naaman is very upset about this. He's furious. He thought he deserved something better. He came ready to pay for something better. And this is what he gets, washing the Jordan seven times. There's some symbolism there. This sevenfold formula mirrors the ritual God would give Israel to be cleansed from leprosy. But the main thing is that it's not about the formula. It's about the humility that it would require for Naaman to do this. 
It's a lesson. Only the humble are ready to receive God's grace. So God takes this five-star general, so to speak, and he tells him, strip of your uniform, strip of your status, strip of your prestige and dignity, and humbly receive my grace. That's how grace comes to all of us. Does grace ever get under your skin like that? Does it ever rub your pride the wrong way? Does it ever seem too easy? You think we would prefer an easy option over a hard one, right? But it doesn't work like that. We're skeptical when we hear the message of grace because we think it's too easy. We think, surely there's something that I must do, that I can do, that I ought to do to contribute to this. You may be here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself a Christian and you kind of think that's what Christianity is all about. It's all about doing something bargaining for or earning your favor with God. But I'm here to tell you that's not at all what the message of Christianity is. The message of Christianity is to say, take off your pride and come humbly receive God's grace with absolutely nothing that you can do to contribute to it. In other words, let's be reasonable, as the prophet Isaiah would say. That's what Naaman's friends tell him, right? Let's be reasonable. King, I'm going to read this uh, from the NIV because I think it gets it a little bit better. What they're telling their, their master is, uh, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? You're ready to do anything. How much more than if he tells you, go wash and be cleansed? It's that simple. Why won't you do it? Could it really be that easy? Could grace really be that simple? That's exactly what grace is. Psalm 51, 2 says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's that simple. Can grace really be that free for the asking? I'm sensitive right now as I look out and, and I think we talk about grace a lot. We preach about grace a lot. And it's easy for us to say and to think right now, of course it is. We know it is. That's what we've been taught. But I'm asking you to think in your heart when you're confronted with the fact that you can do absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing to earn God's favor and his grace. Does that rub you just a little bit the wrong way? And the way you live, and the way you respond, and the way you feel super down on a day when you haven't measured up, and a way that you feel like you should just have a little bit of a resume of good works that God would count worthy of acceptance. It doesn't work that way at all. We can all be cleansed from our sins, not from anything we can do, but because of something that has been done for us. We can be cleansed from our sins because the perfect and holy Son of God took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he dipped in the Jordan River. We find something really interesting at this point in the story. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the New Testament writers would have been working from and studying, uh, we read in 2 Kings 5 about Naaman's washing and the word that's used there is bautizo, for when he goes and dips into the Jordan these seven times. That name, I don't think I need to translate the Greek, right? Bautizo baptized. He was baptized. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, John the Baptist looks up and he sees the Lamb of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, coming to be baptized. And he shouts, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? That was John's question. I need to be baptized by you, John says, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And the spotless Lamb of God in that moment was baptized in the Jordan River. Why? Why would he do that? He was baptized in the Jordan River, taking on himself the cause of sinners. He represented us in our need for cleansing. He represented the cause of sinners stretching all the way back to this Syrian Naaman in our story. He represented the cause of sinners stretching forward all the way to Temecula, California, to people sitting in this room and our need for cleansing. 
Gentile sinners, Jewish sinners, sinners of all tribes, tongues, and nations. He took up the cause of sinners so that we could be cleansed and counted righteous in him because there's absolutely nothing we could do to save ourselves. For our sake, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, story goes on. Naaman finally consents. He finally steps down out of his pride and he humbly receives God's grace. It probably hurt. It usually hurts to be humbled. But what happens in the story? Did you see the transformation as we read the story? It says, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. So you have Naaman, the poster child for our basic dishonesty of pride. He steps into this dirty river that he's not very thrilled about. He steps out of his pride and his prestige and he humbly receives God's grace and he is converted. He's not just healed, he's cleansed. He's cleansed and his skin is made new and his heart is made new. We know this because he confesses his faith. What does he say? He says, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. We won't get into all the details, but he's processing here what his newfound faith will look, by, look like once he gets back to Syria. What if I take a little dirt and I make a sacrifice on the Israel dirt in Syria? And what do I do when I have to go into the temple? I, I think he needs a little bit longer discipleship lesson, but he gets it. He gets grace and he's confessed his faith and, and, the, and the prophet Elisha says, go in peace, go in peace. When God's grace freely offered in Christ finally gets through to us, when we finally get it, when it gets under our skin, when it gets through the pride in our heart, we have to humbly receive his grace. So that's Naaman. What about Gehazi? Spending less time on Gehazi. But he's important because this is the real tragedy in the story, and I think it's the tragedy that can kind of strike close to home for us. The big thing we learn from Gehazi is that this struggle of pride, this basic dishonesty of pride, it isn't just a problem for people out there. Maybe we read about Naaman the Syrian and we think, yeah, of course, he's a Gentile. He's not part of the people of God. Of course he needs grace. But Gehazi kind of surprises us with the way this story goes. It reminds us that this struggle, this need is alive and well in the covenant community, among the people of God here in this place. And it can be spiritually deadly. There are really two things that I want you to see from Gehazi. First, he really has it made, right? He's a member, at least externally, of God's people. He's a church kid, so to speak. He's grown up in church. He knows the story of God's people. He's sung the songs. He's prayed the prayers, probably knew more psalms by heart than we do. He was a servant of Elisha, the prophet of God. He worked for the church. He had a front row seat and to see God's grace in Israel on display. Just a chapter before, he had seen someone been somebody who was raised from the dead. He was there for it. Some of us here this morning are more like Naaman than Gehazi. You wouldn't have darkened the door of a church, but when grace got a hold of you, you humbly repented and received grace, and now you're here. Some of us are more like Gehazi. Some of us grew up sitting in church, sitting in Sunday school, singing the songs, praying the prayers. And it's sobering what we see with Gehazi because Gehazi doesn't get grace. He's in it for himself. He really is an unbeliever. And we can see this uh, a, a number of ways. There are some telltale signs of unbelief. And, and that's what I want you to see here is that it's really unbelief, despising God's law, which reveals that we actually don't get grace. He couldn't care less about what God has commanded. He couldn't care less about what God has commanded. He, he, he refuses to submit to the God of grace, and he's in it for himself. 
See, Elijah had refused Naaman's final offer of, of, of gifts, right? Just out of gratitude, Naaman says, here, take something. Elijah says, no, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. God's grace is free for receiving by faith, free. And that was the lesson. And it sure seems like this really got under Gehazi's skin. He, he says, see, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian. And that's exactly what we're supposed to hear. Like this Syrian, he's despising him. I'm not accepting, we didn't accept what he had offered us. So I'm going to run after him and get something from him. He says, it's just not right. You see, he's grown up as a witness to God's grace, but he doesn't get it. He's seen God's amazing grace on display, and he could care less. He breaks God's law left and right. He covets Naaman's wealth, breaking the 10th commandment. He takes God's name in vain, breaking the 4th commandment. He makes up up this whopper of a story and breaks the 9th commandment. And when Elisha asks him where he's been, he says, your servant went nowhere. Kids, maybe you can add that one to your arsenal. Mom and dad, what were you doing? Your servant went nowhere. You know, it may be funny as a kid, and I heard some of you laugh when he says it. It's, it's funny because it's so bad coming out of the mouth of Gehazi in this story. It's shocking. It's sobering. God's grace is so breathtaking that when we get over ourselves and we grasp the sheer beauty of it, it should compel us to love it and to obey the God of grace. But Gehazi has just blown it. He's squandered this front row seat to God's grace He doesn't believe. He could care less. He's more interested in himself than he is in salvation. He despises God's law, shows that he actually despises God's grace, and that is a very frightening thing for everyone sitting here this morning. Naaman, of course, was more than willing to oblige. He says, here, take it all. Take take whatever you want, Gehazi. But Gehazi's refusal to repent betrays his true colors. He's still in the grips of this basic dishonesty of pride. His pride is keeping him far from grace. Our text closes with this sobering note. Elisha tells Gehazi, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Brothers and sisters, you have to hear this because I don't want this story to leave you in the wrong place. If you value grace, if by faith you've clung to the God of grace, if you cherish grace such that you've humbled yourself at the foot of the cross and cling only to Christ's finished work for your salvation, this is never the end of your story. You will never be cast out. It's like Spurgeon said, Christ's work on your behalf was so complete that not only may you be saved, but you are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of ever not being saved. Just so that's clear. God's promises to be, God promises to be God to his people and to their descendants. But Gehazi is cursed with the leprosy, both he and his descendants. It's this picture of unbelief. He's showing that he never was a part of God's people. He was never in his heart circumcised as part of the people of God, as one way the Old Testament describes it. He had received the front row seat to God's grace, but he squandered that opportunity and never placed his faith in Christ. So he is disowned, in essence, as a member of this covenant community. And it's a picture of unbelief. And it's a picture of what we lose This amazing opportunity to have been presented with grace week after week after week. We lose that in our unbelief. So it's a frightening thing to squander a front row seat to God's grace. I say that for young people here. I say that for everyone who's here. To be in the church but not really a part of the church is a frightening thing to be. So we learn this from Gehazi. 
This basic dishonesty of pride, it isn't just a problem for people out there. It's a problem for us in the covenant community. And it can be spiritually deadly. So Naaman humbles himself. He's cleansed and converted. That's one way to respond to God's grace. Gehazi stuck to his pride and he was condemned. He was cast out. When God's grace freely offered in Christ confronts our basic dishonesty of pride, what will we do? How will we respond? Will you be like Gehazi, smirk at the message of God's grace, thinking it sounds too easy, thinking that it sounds offensive when you really ought to uh, contribute something yourself? That's a scary place to be. Just receive the free offer of God's grace. Or will you follow Naaman's lead? Will you wrestle with the humbling need for grace and finally receive it and wrestle with the humbling need for grace every single time you forget that you need it and when your pride creeps back up? We always want to contribute to our salvation. But the message of God's grace is wonderfully simple. Wash and be clean. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the New Testament, we find a verse that's full of hope for people like you and me who, like Naaman, are really in need of cleansing. After giving this laundry list of sins from which we need to be cleansed, Paul makes this wonderful statement. 1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father, just walking through this story, we're confronted with the fact that we don't always want to receive the free offer of grace. We feel like we need to clean ourselves up instead of coming to you humble, repentant, and willing to receive your free offer in Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is living in unbelief, not willing to accept your grace, not willing to serve the God of grace. I pray that you would bring repentance, Lord, and conversion Pray that we would all be able to rejoice in the story of God's grace that has cleansed us, that has made us not what we once were, or that has made us new in Christ. We ask these things in the name of the God who saves, in the name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.